0: Today, on episode number 173 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I'm so honored to have joining me today, David Webster and Nicola Rivers. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stehoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today I am joined by two guests, David Webster and Nicola, Nikki, Rivers. David is currently head of learning and teaching innovation at the University of Gloucestershire and teaches religion, philosophy, and ethics courses there, too. His academic background is in Buddhist philosophy, but he also teaches in Western philosophy, contemporary spirituality. In 2012, he published the book Dispirited. He's interested in e-learning, but also in how we conceptualize the role of the learner, the tutor, and higher education in general. Nikki is a lecturer in English at the University of Gloucestershire. She has research interests in post-feminism, transnational feminism, popular culture, post-colonial theory, and feminist, literary, and cultural theory. She's the author of Post-Feminism, and the arrival of the fourth wave, turning tides. David and Nikki, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi there. David, as you already know, I have been following you on Twitter for some time and enjoying your collegiality there and all that you have to contribute. Nikki, I apologize, I have not (laughs) done as much with you, but (laughs) I'm really grateful that David has introduced me to you and, and that we get to have this conversation today. But I wanted to admit to... Each of you that when I read, I started to <laughs> just the very, very beginning part of the blog post that David thought we might frame our conversation today. I got a little bit scared because <laughs> you're oh going goodness. to today give us a lot to think about in thinking critically about resisting resilience. And to me, I thought, oh gosh, because so much of resilience and helping our students have more grit. A lot of that is really born out of a movement to care more deeply about our students. So I thought we might start out today with just before we even get into our concerns about it (laughs) what is resilience? What is grit? What is growth mindset? What is a little bit of the background here of some of the thinking that's gone on here? And and then of course we're going to flip it to what are some of your concerns. But let's just start out with what what are you what are you hearing what are you reading about what resilience is what grit is and growth mindset.
1: Absolutely, I'll perhaps start for a, a minute or so. Um, we see an awful lot of writing both in education but also more broadly culturally. I think about the idea of grit, the idea that people need to be kind of be able to be too tough in some respect to cope with things that they, people are more able to cope with failure, that gives them certain advantages. And that really transfers over into the notion of resilience, that somebody who is resilient bounces back. Someone who is able to be knocked out by life, to find things challenging and problematic, but still cope and to still, to a large extent, thrive. So these are seen as benign character attributes to have, I think. And we're not necessarily going to argue that it's always bad to have some of these character attributes. We're really interested and, as you'll see, quite critical about the way in which they get deployed within education. Uh, And often they get presented as being a panacea to a whole range of problems that we think they eclipse. The other one, uh, the other uh, member of that triad that you mentioned, Bonnie, was uh, the growth mindset. It's because this idea that there are two fundamental mindsets a kind of fixed mindset where you believe that your intelligence is a fixed quantity and a growth mindset where you believe that you're able to become more skilled by doing various things. And that is a kind of semi or quasi neurological account of intelligence, which is very, I think, very enchanting to people working in education. And very, It's become very popular. But certainly I began to notice that um, my students were, being, were talking about resilience and we seem to be... We, being presented with it as a potential solution to a range of difficulties they found. I think you perhaps came across it she, in slightly different ways.
2: Yeah, I suppose, um, interesting, I was having a conversation with a colleague just uh, yesterday about this kind of stuff. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm really interested in your critique of resilience, but you need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I thought, I mean, I, I don't think in any way either of us are saying that being resilient is a bad thing or having grit is a bad thing um for me growth mindset is slightly different i've, I've yet to encounter anyone with a fixed mindset so it seems to me a slightly false for me but um I, I think in terms of resilience the issue comes in when you're trying to make people be more resilient rather than questioning why they would need to be more resilient um i guess so i guess that's where the critique comes in.
1: But certainly, our initial concerns with it um, were kind of preceded by kind of seeing it flourish as a notion, so much so that you can find the notion of grit in all sorts of different areas. People describe themselves as the grit doctor and recommend, and so they can solve kind of things in a way that is very much resonant of self-help books. Um, So we see it sometimes as a as a movement of self-help language into the educational setting.
0: As I mentioned, I have been reading so many of your tweets and blogs over the the years. I think it feel, it's it been years now, David, since I started following you on Twitter. So I feel like I already know your heart and care. But people listening, maybe if they have not heard of you or heard of Nikki before, would you each share a little bit about your own teaching philosophy when it comes to care and concern for your students?
1: I'm happy to. and I think, actually, uh, what I would hope comes from this conversation we're having, certainly from say from online and other contexts, is a very kind of humane approach to teaching and learning, which sees students as individuals. And one of the things that we might get opportunity to do towards the end of the conversation today is talk about what alternative ways of framing or conceptualising student attributes are that we think might be more benign. And one thing that I think is often seen as negative or can be framed as negative in this kind of resilience context, is vulnerability. So we're quite keen that we we kind of lionise vulnerability and openness uh, and hopefully have a learning and teaching environment which, in which students feel is emotionally open, they can be safe space, we can discuss really kind of problematic things, and it's okay for both me and for the students not to understand things, not to get things, uh, and that I'm not trying to toughen them up in that sense. But I'm trying to allow them to explore what it means to be them uh, through the subject matter that I'm working with them.
2: Yeah, I mean, similarly to Dave, although I obviously haven't, haven't been teaching for as long, so I'm still kind of early career, probably four or five years teaching experience. But I'm increasingly concerned with how anxious our students are and the kind of pressures that are placed upon them. I don't know as much about the American context, but the kind of focus on employability, which from my sort of position is is an important, although perhaps not particularly welcome focus, in as much as they they are anxious about being employable. But where it kind of dovetails with resilience is I think um the fear for me is that we're kind of pushing the blame onto them if they if they leave university is still feeling unemployable. And I'm not sure that that's how it should work, really. It also kind of marries in with this broader discourse around students or millennials or a certain generation of always being presented as lacking something, as kind of lacking drive or lacking ambition or being lazy or not being tough enough. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose I, I completely can see where you're coming from with the fact that a lot of people pushing a resilience agenda are doing that from a, from a positive place. But I suppose my take on it is that it's actually compounding a problem rather than offering any solution.
0: Those labels really do come through to them. I'm teaching this class that's a personal leadership and productivity class. And one of the things that they were assigned to do early in the semester was what's called an ideal week template, which was originally introduced to me by Michael Hyatt, who's a blogger, leadership blogger. And they put down not not what an ideal week would look like if they weren't in school, but I mean, given their priorities, given their goals, what would a typical week look like that was framed around their priorities and their values and what's important to them? And- that The reason I bring that up is I have a pretty good idea how all 17 of them are spending their time this semester because I'm getting to know them really well and I'm seeing their schedules and how they're managing their tasks and things like that. And just the other day, it came up with someone saying something about being lazy because he was watching Netflix for a few hours on a weekend. And I interrupted yeah. him and I was like, late i've seen your schedule you have two jobs i don't even i don't know how you wake up you're not sleeping enough i was like i would never describe you as lazy but those labels really do come through around millennials and in the post that you each collaborated on i'll be linking to in the show notes but you have all these things that people have blamed on millennials for having broken <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> yeah i mean a part of the thing is that you know that's such a kind of broadly held discourse now it's 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 almost amusing, but I think actually the people that those labels are attached to really genuinely feel that. And, and that's part of the issue. I, I don't know anyone who works harder than my students. Most of them hold down one, two jobs. Some of them have caring responsibilities. And, and I guess in that sense, they, these are deeply resilient people with tons of grit. So offering them training in that area seems to be infantilizing them or acting like they're lacking in, in an area that they're actually excelling in already.
0: One of the big concerns that you express is this student blaming. And you wrote, resilience also works to shift the focus from challenging the multiple social and structural barriers students face to instead suggesting the only barrier to success is the students themselves. What is then presented as an unequivocally good thing to be resilient is actually offering another way to fail, another way to be blamed. How are we blaming students when we focus on resilience?
1: I mean, I think I recognize that kind of um, idea. There's things that we must have written.
0: Um, Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm (laughs) quoting you. Yes, yes, yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, But my sense is that when we, um, when students fail and some of them will fail when they leave or when they don't thrive in the way that they expect to thrive, they don't necessarily get the job that they've been dreaming of straight away or for some time or whatever it might be. Um, this discourse often seems to very much internalize on their behalf the idea that the only factor which is responsible for their success is how they perform. What how gritty they are, how tough they are, how much they can kind of take it. Uh, and sometimes you get I think the best term for it is kind of inspiration poured. You know, those kind of labels over nice sunsets on Tumblr or on social media saying how all you need to do is succeed is believe in yourself. What we find is that many of our students are incredibly resourceful, hardworking, full of resilience and grit and still don't succeed. Some do, some don't. But there are so many other factors that are involved in one's own success in the world and things of this sort. that the idea that the success or failure of individuals is purely down to their own efforts and therefore any failing is a failing of theirs. It's really problematic and is part of a kind of meritocratic myth and um, that. We sell students, I think, at their peril, if not ours.
2: Yeah, and I, I suppose I would add, I'm not sure that, that I'm, I mean, I think student shaming is a big factor, certainly in HE and in the way that we sometimes people, um, academics sometimes discuss their students. But I think in this instance, it's it's as much about setting them up to blame themselves. Mm. It's as much about kind of abdicating responsibility rather and, and insisting they take responsibility for their own success in a way that, certainly those of us who are invested in our um, own research and looking at kind of issues of meritocracy and feminism, gender equality and um, racial equality, know, know not to be true. And so the, the blame is there. But I think, as Dave said, it's more about um, forcing them to internalize that critique.
0: Earlier today, I recorded a monthly Q&A podcast on my husband's podcast. And a woman had written in and she aspires to grow and and move up in the hierarchy in her organization. And my my husband ended up answering her question first because she said, you know, essentially she was asking, how do I have more executive presence? That's not the word that she used, but that's to be more concise what she was asking about. And so he had some ideas for her and I'm sitting on the other side of the table kind of he doesn't know this, but I'm sort of seething because I I had just been preparing to speak with both of you. And I'm thinking, and I did say, I did say this, but I was maybe not quite as blunt as I'm about to be. But I said, oh, great, (laughs) you can take on all these masculine qualities that these male CEOs have, because we just have an abundance of them here in the United States. And it's not actually going to work, because the studies would indicate that if we females try to take on masculine qualities, we actually have a very revolting experience for the people They just don't receive it as well from a woman. So you can try to be more confident, then you'll be seen as arrogant and cocky. And you can try all these things. So that's sort of what I heard out of what you're saying is that I, I, first of all, it doesn't take into consideration enough of the other factors that come in besides resilience.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, one of the things that I want to say is um, that we, um, I think, we wrote about it a bit. But one thing that operates as part of this discourse is it tends because it it focuses so much on what the individual is like and whether that is their right to succeed or not. It almost treats like oppression, inequality, discrimination as being something that can't ever change. Because the world's unfair, because the world's tough, the world's mean, you need to toughen up to face it. Rather than thinking, as educators, what would it take to have a world that wasn't like that, where we didn't treat inequality like the weather, something that can't be helped, you put a coat on. So I think that, I think, is much more of an open, problematic question for educators, rather than saying we need to just slightly give our students a different set of attributes. I think, well, actually how do we make our students go out and make us a different world in which they don't need to take on the qualities and often they just need work anyway.
2: Yeah I, I mean I, well I'm really glad that's what you took from our, um, our post and our stuff because that was certainly um, in there from, from my perspective and I and I guess that also highlights the fact that resilience and grit aren't equal and uh, across certainly across genders or across race or across class and they and they're also quite gendered terms themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a kind of a gritty woman will be received in a different way than a gritty guy. And and so when we're th- if, if we're going to persist with resilience training, these are all things that need to be thought out more clearly and more explicitly rather than just pushing forward with this kind of implicit, quite masculine idea that just tough it out and you'll eventually make it.
0: I really got a lot out of I believe it was a footnote at the bottom of your post, but you you said the authors are not against employability, both having had experience of unemployment and are acutely aware that students will be facing realities where they need to demonstrate their employability. Our reluctance to be gung-ho advocates of resilience is also drawn from the need to be open about the current economic environment and the opportunities available, even if a student has the right attitude, mindset and toughness, there is no guarantee of success. Further, having, quote, the right attitude of mindset and toughness is not an authentic set of tangible outcomes to demonstrate to an employer. They're not actual skills. That really resonated with me. And and I wonder if you would discuss a little bit where you think we can be helpful in higher ed thinking about employability and building skills and then where we need to be reluctant to fully embrace that.
1: Certainly, and I think, I think it's interesting that you pick on, on that kind of uh, bit because we felt the need to kind of point out that actually we're quite interested in our students doing well and thriving because we genuinely care about them and want them to succeed in the various ways they can. And then one of the problems of this kind of discourse, when it's very crass version, is it is like a kind of a Wild West kind of parody of masculinity, of just toughen up and be on your own, do down everybody else, and the world isn't like that. And an awful lot of employees, there may be exceptions, but some employees actually may want people who can get on well with other people, who can be trusted, who can trust other people, who can you know, use that to kind of empathize with other people. So there's an awful lot of things that you might consider to be more genuine skills that might, people might feel more happy to embrace, more kind of ethically open to, to taking on. That aren't as problematic at all so I think that at least from my perspective is the sense that there are, there are optimist, optimistic ways to kind of to travel from this critique I think it starts in a kind of discomfort and dis-ease with these kind of notions in their form that they are very prevalent in but I hope we kind of can drive it in a somewhat more optimistic direction.
2: Yeah I mean I suppose I came to kind of critiquing resilience by um, by being an early career researcher in kind of precarious, um, not unemployed, but underemployed, you know, working long hours, doing lots of stuff for free and, um, and lots of very well-meaning, very decent, very good, kind people saying to me, don't give up hope, be resilient, keep going. And, um, and, and that's fantastic and it's encouraging, but it's also quite difficult when you're sort of surviving on <laughs> meager wages, working long hours, trying to support a family and so that, that was kind of one of the things that made me think, actually, this, this well-intentioned discourse is, is, is not as benign as it seems. And I suppose in terms of employability, I've worked a lot with students on employability, taught a lot of skills modules. And I, I think it's something that academics need to take seriously, as I say, because students are rightly anxious about their employment opportunities. I guess... One of the places that I think we can go with this and somewhere certainly Dave and I are starting to go with the paper we're writing up is trying to think more broadly about how we define success and how we define failure Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe having more honest conversations with our students about what what that means for them um, and and how to kind of really rethink these ideas.
0: How are you starting to reshape that conversation with your students? What are what are you finding as you start to introduce the word success and and how loaded it is as you as you share that with your students?
1: In a way, I'm almost lucky, and I'm probably lucky in lots of ways. But in, in teaching terms, that I tend to teach philosophy students who probably haven't come to university in order to make their fortune, and therefore are already kind of very open to conversations about what it is they're here for, what kind of people are they aspiring to become. So in a sense, that's an easier conversation perhaps for me to have than a student, a a tutor who's got a group of accountancy students or something, Mm -hmm. uh, or business management students. But I think nonetheless, you still can have open conversations about what would it look like for them to be successful, what do they actually want to get out of university. And I think actually, for many people, irrespective of their in the back of their minds, about employment and about having to get have a, uh, a a job, there is something also about they're doing it partly to transform themselves into somebody different. They, who they left home, they left you know they kind of school life behind, and they kind of they use it as a transition to adulthood, and they're kind of crafting the adult they're going to become partly through the means of education. So I'm very interested in this idea of them working with me but also with each other working out the boundaries of how they get on other people how they interact with other people i think there's an awful lot you can do to help them have those conversations and help them be better and not hopefully drive them down the idea of thinking they need to do down their their classmates in order to be the one that succeeds
2: yeah i suppose um in in certain things i teach so if i if i am doing kind of skills modules or um workshops or stuff one of the things i really i try um and get across to students, probably to a greater or lesser degree, is how impressed with them I already am, you know, how, just how successful I think they already are to, to be in the position that they're, they're in and to be working as hard as they are. And I suppose to sometimes, obviously, you kind of give, if you give an employability workshop and you focus on the fact that, well, employability is, is a really tricky thing and the economy is quite difficult and, and jobs are scarce and there are all these things kind of stacked against you, they can leave feeling slightly disheartened. Um and so one of the things I try and do then is just to talk to them about how how they they are in it together if they think about being in it together rather than as Dave says in this kind of locked in this competitive mindset that that perhaps they'll share resources and share ideas um and hopefully start creating something better
0: when we get closer to graduation I do try to always carve out time in my classes to have conversations about identity a lot of times the students haven't really done a lot of deep thinking about that. And they're about to have their identity ripped from them of being a student. <laughs> yeah. And for some, they will immediately be able to replace it with perhaps an ill-fitting, perhaps not, you know, idea of what it means to be an adult, even though I consider them adults when they are in college, but they often don't consider themselves adults. And then all the pressures that that brings. And I try to talk about if you fall into this hamster wheel of life, you're never... You've never checked in off enough boxes because, yes, you may get that job when you graduate according to the timing that people say you ought to or you feel like they're saying. But then it's when are you going to get married and when are you going to have a child and what about the next child? I mean, it's it's it that never stops is that pressure that you're not done yet. And then how often do we just sit with ourselves and and realize who we are without all those external strappings. I'm not saying it very well right now, but this it really does often we have to think hard about this word success and then also about timing. That makes it so hard because they've been indoctrinated with this idea of whether it's terms or semesters or however the the classes are measured in terms of weeks and I checked off that box and I got that grade and everything is so measured and I inputs and outputs, you know, that they're just sort of trained in that and then that immediately goes away and it's really hard to adjust and then as you pointed out earlier in our conversation there oftentimes isn't support there's not the social support to be around people that are experiencing the same thing
1: and i think that's made worse when the expectation is that they are going to be fine all by themselves completely alone and that the goal is just to thrive alone this idea that they need other people is kind of something i think most of of us certainly would want to really enforce with students and can think about how they kind of cope with the world beyond university together, not as individuals. And I think you're right in that part of education ideally should be a chance for them to think about do what they want to do with their lives. You know, life is very short, they're sooner going to go through these various things then, then it'll be over. And uh, why they're not using educational opportunities to reflect on what they want to do with their lives. Do they want to go down this career road? Fine. Do they want to go down other routes, which might also be fine. So in terms of thinking about what success looks like for them, education has kind of a big role to play. And I think tutors, personal tutors, course leaders, people they see regularly and often have uh, the ability to chat to, quite a lot to talk to, um, have some responsibility there to allow them to kind of reflect on what the point is for them rather than what the point is that other people are going to impose on them
2: yeah I, I mean I, I agree I think that when when life becomes a kind of checklist, it's all, all too, there's never really a success is there you're just always rushing from one one goal to the next. I think it's really interesting to talk to students about identity. That is something that I do an awful lot talk about how and what shapes their identity and in fact just the other day I was talking to a group of students about the notions of the self and of the true self and how they know. If there is such a thing and they're saying, oh, well, I'll know my true self is when I'm happiest. So if I've got the job I want or the and all of the stuff that they linked to happiness was um, kind of external. And I i don't judge that. I, I'm quite I'm understanding of the fact that a good job means that you can afford to eat well and you can afford to feed your children or, you know, there's all sorts of things that come off that rather than just thinking, oh, that's an awful a capitalist ideal. So I don't think that either Dave or I are at all invested in, in judging students who view success in that kind of monetary or fashion or, or, you know, but I think it is also about helping them to see success in smaller things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say not to hopefully you know, they will have things externally that allow them to be happy and find identity through that. But also reflecting on kinda of intrinsic things that make them happy as well. And their identity being something that isn't rooted in things they can't control in that way. Which makes me sound awfully kinda of like a Greek stoic philosopher, which I don't want to do. <laughs>
0: Before we go to the recommendation segment, I wanted to make sure and leave some space for you to talk about alternative ways of framing students. I know you've, you've mentioned some already, but I just want to make sure and leave space for that before we transition to the next part. So what would you like to share about what your hopes are for how we might change this conversation?
1: I certainly think that questioning the discourse and having that conversation in the open with colleagues is quite important, and within within institutions is quite important, making sure that if we do feel there is something to be gained within training students to be more resilient, that that is a no- more nuanced, sophisticated context that we understand what we're doing, what we're up to, but also making sure that we don't go down this route of a crass notion of kind of wild west masculinity or whatever it might be and talk about other qualities they might develop to do with compassion, to do with collegiality, to do with vulnerability, and that these things are really important and you know, when we were writing a recent presentation on this, we ended up thinking about Paulo Freire and kind of um, liberative pedagogy and ways of teaching, and also reading um, lots of bell hooks in the teaching trans- transgress, talking about education as um, the practice of freedom, uh, and thinking. But actually, there's a much better way of framing this that starts starts with the purpose of education and works out from there, rather than starting with people's anxieties and kind of becoming more anxious as a result.
2: Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd add to that I don't want to uh, misquote Bell um, Hooks. Uh, that would be an awful thing to do. But I think that part of the the stuff that she talks about in that is that we need to be, in in order to have this kind of um, aspire to this kind of freedom, we need to be honest with our students. And I think, I, I'm I think that's possibly the difficulty in this situation is in in being honest with students that isn't the same, in in a way that doesn't just say, oh, this is all. All going to nothing it's all going to fail so don't don't try you know because that isn't where we're coming from but more more just to say just to equip them with the tools to look externally as well as internally to look at the factors that are influencing what's going on around them so that they don't leave with the kind of burden of feeling like they're always lacking
0: well, I'm looking forward to reading more of what you both work on together, and just thank you for starting this conversation today. This is the point in the show where we each get to give some recommendations, and I just wanted to mention to listeners, I, I had a <laughs> I can't believe I got myself into this, but I think at the end I'm going to be excited that I decided to do this. But there's actually two conferences that are happening here in Orange County, where I live. Orange County, California. And it seemed I would be so disappointed if I didn't just find a way to carve out the time to be there. And there I saw a lot of people that I know from Twitter, but I've never met in person that are going to be there. So I just wanted to mention if anyone listening is going to be at the Open Ed Conference in Anaheim, California on October 12th, through 13th, please stop by and say hi and seek me out. You can tweet on me, tweet on me, tweet at me on Twitter. (laughs) That was a tongue twister there. And for those of you who can't be there, which is probably most of you listening, I just wanted to make sure that we all remember that there often are opportunities to still connect with conferences like this through virtual connecting. We've talked about this before on the show, but they are planning on being at open ed 17. And what that means is that you could go connect and actually, whether it's watch a session while it's happening, or I always find even better is these hallway conversations where you can hear from some of the keynote and other presenters that will be sharing there and have more of an informal conversation like we do on this podcast. So I'll be putting a link in the show notes to virtually connecting so you can find out not just about open ed, but It seems almost every week they're at a different conference and connecting people who are not able to be there in person with people who are, and it's just a really great experience. I have experienced it on the side of being the one in front of my computer, and this will be the first time I'll be experiencing it where I'm actually there on site. So I'm going to pass it over to David now for his recommendation.
1: Sure. I wanted to recommend a book, uh, which is only semi-relevant to what we're talking about, but I'm enjoying it. And it's an autobiography or a memoir by the British comedian and um, writer, actor, I guess, Robert Webb. And the book's called How Not to Be a Boy. And it's a kind of story of his upbringing. Uh, the reason I thought it was relevant to this is it's a an account of growing up in a similar time to when I grew up in Britain in the 1970s. And he writes a lot about masculinity and what it is to be kind of inculcated into culture of being male in the kind of late 20th, and early 21st century, his attempts to reject that or to kind of get very questioning about that discourse. So I think it's a very easy read. It's very kind of relaxing, kind of simple, straightforward read. But there's more to it than meets the eye in terms of getting under the grip, under the surface of what boys are taught they must be like in order to thrive.
0: Well, it sounds lovely. Thank you got that one down for for the show and also for myself selfishly. (laughs) And Nikki, what do you have to share today?
2: So I guess I've got a couple of books as well. I think the first book that is so widely recommended, but I can't not recommend it myself also would be um, Sarah Ahmed's Living a Feminist Life, which I just think is uh, just resonates across everything that we say and almost all of the things that we research or think about, and is really something that shouldn't be missed. By, by anyone with any interest in any of the stuff we've discussed, really, or meritocracy or gender or, um, or even just contemporary culture. And the second thing would be Joe Littler's book Against Meritocracy, which is a fantastic, um, and I'm still I'm halfway through it and really enjoying it, but it's a really insightful and really accessible look at how this myth of meritocracy functions across various um, areas of culture and the, the kind of damage that that can do.
0: Oh, I'm so excited about all three of these recommendations and the list just gets longer of things I really want to read. They all sound really wonderful. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Well, I just want to, before we close the show, to say thank you so much for investing your time. And not only are you investing the time in terms of minutes, but this is nighttime for you and you clearly have carved out a space to be a part of this conversation. I just really want to express my gratitude to each of you.
1: Well, thank you, thank you for coming to talk to us about it. I'm glad people are interested in some of the things we're writing about.
2: No, yeah, thank you. It's great. It's great to hear this, the, the, your take on things and, and the, the stuff that you got from the blog and, and the things that we've been doing. It's been really interesting.
0: Oh my goodness, even more books that sound amazing to read and add to my list. <laughs> Those sounded great, and I really appreciate both Nikki and David for participating in this conversation and. I love the word that David used as he suggested alternatives for talking about resilience is to also have that nuance in there so that we don't get the blaming that they described so well. And just thanks to both of you for being on the episode again. And to everyone listening, I, I feel like we're having a conversation and it's just great. I'm hearing from more of you, whether it's over email or Twitter and just really treasure to hear and read what it is you're experiencing out of the show and how you're able to put it into practice in your own pedagogy. Thank you so much for all those opportunities and share the show with a friend. If you haven't talked about it with your colleagues, maybe send an email because it just grows the community even more. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.